back in 2018, Aaron and I worked for a company called Community Life. And to put it simply, our job for this apartment complex was to do community events, to encourage retention of their tenants, and to foster friendship, and of course, their rating online. The compensation for this job would be that we got to stay in an apartment for free. It was very helpful back in 2018, especially since I was a full-time grad student working on my MDiv and Shannon was working full-time on the side. And because of this, we were able to make means. We were able to get by. But one day, out of nowhere, at least for me, we lost our jobs unexpectedly. They said, you're done. We don't need you anymore. We got the ratings we want. And so you have 30 days uh, to find a new place to live, pack up, and go. Um, needless to say, it was a little bit stressful, right? Um, we were short on money, now we're going to have to pay rent for a place. Um, and, and we were just wondering, what should we do? Like, we're kind of stuck here. We were stressed, so we prayed about it. But my question for you is this morning, have you ever had a stressful event like that in your own life? Have you had something weigh heavily on you that just happened out of nowhere? My guess is that many of you in this room have. You've had much harder things than that happen to you. So what is it that is causing you stress and anxiety here this morning? For those of you who are students here this morning, my guess is for you it might be a test that you studied for and you're anxiously awaiting the results of that test. Perhaps like my own story and Aaron's way back in the day, maybe you lost your job, a job's not supporting you, and it's not meeting your needs, and now that it's gone, there's anxiety and fear of what might be next. For those of you who are parents, who are expecting to be parents, maybe, maybe there was an ultrasound in the past that you had and you were anxiously awaiting to hear if the baby was healthy or not. And still, for others of you, you might be anxious or stressed about children, brothers or sisters, who are not making the best choices in life. And because of this, your heart is troubled for them. They're going down a bad path, and they seem to have no intention at all of turning from it at all. And still for others in this room, perhaps, perhaps a loved one was involved in a serious accident or diagnosed with an incurable disease. And you're wondering if they're going to pull through or if anything can be done for them at all. All of us in this room collectively will at one point or another in our life have something heavy weigh on us deeply. And if not today, the day is certainly coming for us all. So what do we do? What do we do in such moments when we don't have peace? What do we do when anxiety and fear overwhelms our hearts and our souls? My hope is this morning that as we look at the Gospel of John here, John 14, we will learn to take all of these anxieties, all of these fears, all of these stresses that we are going through and the unknowns to Jesus. For Jesus is the one here who has experienced more weight than ever we could ever possibly know or fathom, and yet he has peace. 
So this brings us first then to John 13 before we get to 14. And it's here that we see Jesus carrying the weight of the world upon his shoulders. Jesus is carrying the weight here in 13 that he's about to be betrayed by one of his close disciples. He's about to experience heartbreak as Judas betrays him with a kiss. He's carrying the weight of knowing that his disciples, whom he's invested so much in, are about to desert him completely. Even Peter will deny him three times. He's carrying the weight of the reality that tomorrow he dies a torturous, horrific death on a cross. And he's carrying the weight that for the first time in all of eternity, he will be abandoned by the Father. He will face his Father's displeasure. And he's carrying the weight of all of our sins the next day and will bear the hell which we all deserve. So as we talk about things that weigh on us heavy this morning, we realize that Jesus has experienced the same kind of weight in far greater ways. And we look to him. Jesus shares part of this burden and weight with his disciples here in this chapter. He tells them. He tells them what is bothering him, what is weighing heavy on him. And with great pain in his voice, he tells them, one of you are going to betray me. And likely with tears in his eyes, he tells the disciples about how he's going to die, how he's departing from them, and they can't follow him. Peter, of course, here protests, right? He says, no way, Jesus, I will follow you to the ends of the earth. And Jesus assures him, you will deny me three times. Disciples, all of them, all of them are greatly troubled. They're they're troubled in their hearts and into the core of their being. And they're fearful. And so Jesus, even with all of this weight upon his shoulders, says to them and to us, don't let your hearts be troubled, he tells them. Don't let this bother you. For peace I leave with you, and my peace I give to you. I do not give to you this peace as the world gives. So don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. So Jesus, even with all of this weight, he doesn't make it about himself. Don't you know what I'm going through? He doesn't do any of that. That's how we respond when we go through pressures of life. But instead, he seeks to serve his disciples and to give them comfort and peace. A peace that he possesses within himself. A peace that he carries even though he's about to die the next day. And so this isn't any type of ordinary peace at all. It's not a peace like the world gives. It's not a peace that's based on external circumstances, a peace that is dependent on my health, my job, my life, my relationships. It's not a fragile peace that Jesus seeks to give his disciples here. It is a peace instead that is otherworldly. It is out of this world and it is supernatural. It cannot be taken away from us. So it is a peace that is rooted in Jesus Christ himself, who never fails. And so in love, with all of this crushing weight upon him, he desires to give this to his disciples, whom he knows are going to be faithless and are going to desert him. 
And so again, the question for us this morning is how then do we receive this peace from Jesus? This otherworldly, supernatural peace in the midst of all sorts of circumstances. And Jesus tells us right away, doesn't he? He tells us right away in verse 1. Don't let your hearts be troubled, he says. But believe in God. Believe in me. So this is the key. If we are to truly have peace with Jesus, believe in me. Look to me, not your circumstances. Get your eyes off of them and on to me. So if we are to truly receive this peace that passes all understanding, it begins with the recognition that it comes from Jesus alone, through believing in him, believing in Jesus and who he is and his promises to us. So there it is. We can all go home. You know how to have peace now. Just believe in Jesus. We're done. Sermon, sermon's done, right? No, I, we need more than that, of course. We need to know not only that we are to believe in Jesus, but who he is, right? We need to know the person of Jesus and who it is we're believing in. And we need to know his promises. And that's what he reveals to us in these verses. That by believing in Jesus and as he reveals himself to be and his promises, we gain a peace that can never be taken away from us. A peace that sustains us through the storms of life. So then, who is this Jesus that we are to believe in? And what does he promise for his troubled disciples here this morning? First, he gives us the comforting promise of a place with God. Yes, Jesus is about to be betrayed. Yes, he will die. Yes, his disciples are going to forsake him. But by doing this, by going away, Jesus is preparing a place for them, a home, a dwelling place with God. And the main idea here is that, that this dwelling place has more than enough room for everyone. And so some take this verse and they get really creative. You know, they run on with there's glorious mansions in heaven and, and it's beyond our imagination. And it's not a bad thing to stretch our imagination. That's, that's great. That's wonderful. But the good news here is that Jesus is making it so that we can be with God the Father again. And that's what is exciting and beautiful here. So Jesus is showing them the bigger picture. Yes, horrible things are going to happen, but I'm going to use it to prepare a place for you. I'm going to make it possible so that you can be with my Father and I forever. And as we understand the whole story of the Bible, this is good news. Because we remember that the last time humanity dwelled with God was in the Garden of Eden without sin. And Jesus is saying he's making it so that we can dwell with God like this again. Jesus is bringing paradise back to his disciples. He's making it so that we can live in community with one another without sin. We can be with God himself again. So take hope. Even though bad things are going to happen, I'm going to use it to do unimaginable good. I'm going to make it so that you can be with my Father and I forever. I think some of us this morning might question whether or not it was needed for Jesus to depart in this way. Like, really, Jesus, you need to depart so that we can be with God again? 
Like, why did you need to do that? Why did you need to die to make it possible for us to be with God again? And the short answer is because of what happened in the beginning, right? In the beginning, we know the story. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They chose to rule themselves. They set themselves up over God's kingdom in opposition to him. And ever since then, we haven't had peace. There's been chaos and evil that entered our world, and we experience it every day of our lives. And by rebelling against our God in this way, we cut ourselves off from him. We're no longer his friend. We are his enemy, and all of humanity is in a state of rebellion against the God who created him, them, and made them. And so we don't listen to God naturally anymore. Instead, we pretend he doesn't exist at all. And so we're at war with God. We don't have peace. But Jesus here is saying he came to change that. He came to bring us to peace with his Father so that we could dwell with him again. So that we wouldn't be at war any longer. And he extends this olive branch, this peace from God the Father to us here this morning. But this peace that God offers isn't free. And this, this is why Jesus must depart. This is why Jesus must go to the cross. For we realize that just as crimes require payment, so there is a price to be paid for our crimes against the God of the universe. And the crimes for our defiance against God is the price of eternal death. So this is exactly why Jesus departs from his disciples. It's why he leaves them temporarily by going to the cross and dying a horrific death. The eternal Jesus comes to die an eternal death that we deserve for our crimes against God so that we who believe in him are restored Restored to peace with God. So this is what Jesus has come to do for us. He's come to bring us peace by dying a death we deserve to die. And now, as he reveals here, he is the only way. <clears throat> Jesus makes this clear to Thomas. And for us, for he tells Thomas plainly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to dwell with my Father, if you want to be restored to God, it comes exclusively through me. There is no other way for peace in this life. You must believe in me. So we realize then that it comes with the requirement of believing exclusively in Jesus. That is what he is demanding here. Jesus does not merely point the way back to God. He is the way. And there is no other way in which we will reach the Father apart from Christ. So while many people, of course, in our world all around us believe that all religions are pretty much equal and they all get you back to God in some shape or form, Jesus claims exclusivity here, doesn't he? He says, there is no other way to the Father. I am it. There is no other way. All the other ways of getting to God are lifeboats and parachutes with holes in them. They will either leave us drowned at the bottom of the ocean or dead upon impact on the ground. 
And so what Jesus tells us here then is the most loving thing he can tell us. We must hear him clearly. We must believe in him. For only he can bring us home safely to the Father where we can dwell forevermore. And in this, there is a peace that we can have with God. So even as Jesus encouraged his disciples in the opening verse again, believe in me, believe in me. So he calls them to do so again. Believe in me, I am the only way that you can have true peace and true life. So as we realize then that that our eternal and final home is with God through Jesus Christ, this really does free us up here on earth. We can hold then the things of earth loosely. We don't have to lose heart when things in this life go away. Our current homes, possessions, material goods, trinkets, whatever it is, it's nice to have, but at the end of the day, it is not necessary. It will all pass away, but we can have peace. We can have joy that even if we lose it all in this lifetime due to unforeseen tragedy or due to persecution, we cannot lose the one thing that matters, our home with God in the end. So this is not a peace that the world gives, but it is eternal, secure peace in Jesus. We cannot lose being with our creator and our sustainer and the joy giver in whom we find life and existence. We cannot lose his presence where there is fullness of joy at his right hand and pleasures forevermore. We cannot lose it because Jesus himself has won it for us through his death and his resurrection and he promises here. He promises here to one day bring us home to be with God. And in this there is sweet joy and peace. So Jesus gives us comfort and peace knowing then that even though bad things are about to happen, God's going to use it to prepare a place for us. And so we can find the same comfort in the evils that we face. Just as he turned the evils around for Jesus to bring about our redemption and good, so he is doing the same for us. Jesus then also promises that he is sufficient. This is brought to bear on us as Philip asked Jesus to show them the Father. This is likely prompted by Jesus saying, look, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. And Philip's like, well, Jesus, show us the Father, right? Reveal to us the Father, and we will be satisfied. That's what he says. It will be enough if you just show us the Father. And so Philip, in this request, may have been saying something like this. Jesus, show us the Father in a miraculous way. Show us like you did Moses in the burning bush. Show us like like you did Moses on, on the mountain where you passed by him and you made your glory go before him. Show us the miraculous nature of the Father in this glorious way. So maybe his words were, were something like this. Do this and it will be enough. Do this and it will be sufficient for us. Do this and we will have peace. But in love, Jesus explains to Philip, look, don't you know that the Father and I are one? Don't you know 
that in seeing me, you're seeing the Father? Even as Paul would say in Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so in seeing me, Philip, you are seeing God in a greater way than ever before. And one of the main things that Jesus is communicating to Philip is that I am enough. I am enough. You don't need to see any more miracles from me. I am enough and you need to believe. And the same is true for all of us here this morning as well. Though we may not exactly ask for a miracle of sorts, I think sometimes we do ask God to prove his love, to prove that he truly has everything under his control. And so we sometimes think that we need something more than Jesus himself. Jesus, I need something more to calm my anxious heart, my troubled heart. And so we believe that we need more money, wealth. We believe we need a certain job or title. We need perfect kids, more stuff, a spouse, the respect of others, and the list goes on. Or, or we believe that we need something in our life to go away, don't we? We believe that we need a troubling circumstance whether health-related, financially-related, or socially-related, or just some pressure in our life that is relentless to go away. If this problem goes away, Jesus, then it will be enough. Then I'll have peace. Jesus, just give me this one thing, and I will be satisfied. And Jesus looks at Philip. He looks at us this morning, and he says, Have I been with you for so long? Do you still not believe that I am enough? And lovingly, he calls us gently to look to him and realize who he is. He is God. He has all things under his control. He is enough, and he will meet our needs. Do we believe? So Jesus promises here that he is enough, and he directs our eyes back to him. But then he also offers us the promise not to leave us helpless or ineffective. Instead, Jesus tells him, even though I'm going away, I'm going to empower you. Do not worry. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I will empower you. And so Jesus here first promises then that he will empower the one who believes in him to do the same works that he did. In fact, greater works than me. So what is meant by this? Have you, have you contemplated those words? And do we really believe that those who believe in Jesus will do the same works and greater works than Jesus? What, what does he mean by this? Like, does he mean that Jesus' disciples will do greater things in the sense of, like, greater miracles? Like, like raising Lazarus from the dead or casting out demons or, or greater things than multiplying the bread and the fish? And I think in our mind, we might be, like, tempted to think that way. But the key here is what Jesus says right after this. They will do greater things than me exactly because I'm going to the Father. They will do greater things than these because I am going to the Father. That's what he tells us. And so our works then, what he's saying, our works will be greater in the sense that they reveal clearly who Jesus is to the world. He's the ascended Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. 
And so while Jesus did his works on earth, he often kept his works veiled, right? He told people, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. Keep it to yourself. We saw that even last week. But here, as the risen, ascended Messiah, now we connect all the works of Jesus and our own works today to Christ Jesus, the ascended Messiah. And so our works done now in connection to Jesus are done in a greater way in that it reveals the entirety of his person and his works. So that when we love people, when we serve others around, so we are doing it as an extension of Jesus Christ himself, as the body of Christ here on earth with Jesus as our head. And by embodying Jesus both in word and deed, we are making him known in fuller ways and doing greater works as we connect it back to him. And so Jesus gives us comfort that even though he is leaving us, he will not leave us helpless. And this promise carries on even to today. But then he also promises that we will be empowered not only to do great works, but through prayer. He will empower us as we depend on Jesus through prayer. For he says, whatever Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And this is a promise from Jesus to us, again, that I don't think we take very seriously. Jesus will answer our prayers in his name. That's a promise from God Almighty. And he will answer it as it works according to the glory of the Father. And he answers it as it is according to his will here on earth. So this means that if we believe that Jesus will truly answer our prayers and work through them and empower us, how much more do we need to be praying? Look at your own prayer life this past week. How often have you prayed? How often do you believe and think Jesus will answer these prayers? We should be asking for great things that God would use us in immensely wonderful ways to bring glory to God the Father, and he will answer. This is a promise, and we need to take advantage of it as the church. So I'm going to tell you something you already know. We need to be praying more. We need to know how to pray better, and we need to look at Jesus and how he teaches us to pray So we don't pray in self-centered ways. We pray in God-exalting ways. And when we do this, he promises to answer. So then an application, deepen your prayer life. If you don't already know the Lord's Prayer by heart, I just encourage you, pray the way that Jesus taught us to pray as a beginning step. Teach it to your children. I say it with my children every morning, and it's always convicting. But Father... Holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our contentment. Give us what we need. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Learn the Lord's prayer. Apply it to your life. Pray each and every day according to his will, and he will answer. And then, of course, from the apostles and from one another in our church. Pray, pray, and pray, especially when we are anxious of heart, for it's how we are empowered and how we will stand. 
And so even as Peter would say in 5.7, 1 Peter 5.7, we cast all our cares, all our anxieties, all our fears, all of our troubles and concerns about God, for he cares. He hears us as we pray to him and call out to him. And he will answer the cry of his children and help them. So we're empowered then to great works through prayer and finally by the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot more than just this in our verses. Um, But this is what I want to draw out. Jesus reveals here that we will not be left alone. Yes, he's going away. But he has not left us on our own. Jesus would send the Holy Spirit. And he would work in our lives and our hearts and empower us. And the Spirit helps us know then that we are not abandoned by God. For he is the down payment and the guarantee of our inheritance. He assures us that we will no longer be like orphans who are unloved and uncared for. And the disciples really needed to hear this. Because this is exactly how they were going to feel. And it's often how we feel too. But the Holy Spirit helps us and them realize that Jesus will return for us. He assures us that. For he has adopted us as sons and daughters in Christ. And so the Spirit causes us then to take great hope and peace in Christ's return to us one day. The Spirit also then empowers us to do these greater works which we've talked about. It's through the Spirit that we are able to properly love one another. It's through the Spirit that we can serve each other. It's through the Spirit that we can have peace and love. And Jesus then has left us the Spirit knowing that we need his help. And so even as Jesus closes out this text, he assures the disciples that he will certainly send this Spirit to them. And the Spirit will help them remember the promises that he is making to them here and now. Because they are about to forget all of these promises that he's telling them. They're about to completely forget as he's crucified the next day. So Jesus gives the Spirit so that we, too, then, might not only remember, but believe these promises given to us by God and to apply them to our heart. And isn't this what we really all need this morning? These things aren't revelational per se. You know these promises from God, but our struggle is we struggle to believe these promises from God. If it's just as easy as believing, then none of us would ever worry or have anxiety or fears, and yet we do. We all do. And what this reveals for all of us then is that in our belief, there is often unbelief at the heart of our being. If we're honest with ourselves, we struggle to believe the words that Jesus has said here. We struggle to believe in the goodness of Christ in the midst of trials and severe pains, or that he could somehow bring good out of the bad situation that we're in. We forget his promises in these moments, and so we need the Spirit's help. We forget when a loved one passes away unexpectedly, a person whom we relied on. We struggle to believe when people whom are supposed to hold up the faith and be models of the faith fail us. We struggle and have so much unrest and anxiety when horrible things happen to us. And so like the man in Mark 9, 24, 
who says, I believe, Jesus, help my unbelief. So we must learn to cry out the same to our God. I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me to truly know and grasp that you are good. Help me to truly know and believe that you will make all things right. Help me, Jesus, to believe that you can truly give me this peace that passes all understanding. Help me believe that you will work out this devastation for good in the end. Help me to believe the promises that you are giving us here. And in crying out to God, the Spirit answers our prayer. He helps us to believe against all unbelief. So as we look at these promises once more here on the screen, let's call out to him now. Let us ask him to help us. Help us to believe, instill this faith within us and give us the peace that passes all understanding. Let's pray. Jesus, you have said here, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. So do not let your hearts be troubled or fearful. Jesus, help us to believe. Give us this peace that passes all understanding. Help us to truly, truly grasp that all things, all things will work out in the end as we look to you. For you are all powerful and you are good. So we cry out to you in our pains. We cry out to you in our anxiety, our restlessness. Give us peace. We ask, Lord, that you would do this for us as we look to you. And then this, Lord, we ask that we would trust you and place all of our hope and faith in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.